This is the Rounds Table. Welcome back, listeners. Thank you for joining us today. We're joined by Dr. Lauren Lacroix, who has been on our show before. She calls in from Ottawa, where she's a fellow of emergency medicine and also uh, attends Queen University as a resuscitation and reanimation fellow. Dr. Lacroix, thank you for coming back on the show. I'm happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me again. Uh, As usual, let's get right into it. Tell us what you're going to talk to us about today. So the study that I'm looking at today is called the Diabolo study, and it's looking at the treatment of uncomplicated diverticulitis. Sounds devilish. Tell us a little bit more. What's the bottom line for this article? Well, this article, uh, it was a multi-center randomized control trial of 528 patients with acute uncomplicated diverticulitis, and it showed that observational treatment was non-inferior for time to recovery when compared with treatment with antibiotics. Full disclosure, I am a general internist. I deal with acute diverticulitis on a fairly infrequent basis, but I'm sure you in the front lines in the emergency room see it a lot more. Tell us why did you choose this article and what is its importance in the greater context? It's a very common diagnosis in the emergency department. And uh, in some patients, we can see progression to peritonitis, sepsis, and even death. And classically, we're taught in med school that we should be treating with antibiotics and monitoring these patients for worsening disease. But recently, some people have theorized that diverticulitis is actually an inflammatory condition and antibiotics will provide little to no benefit in uncomplicated cases. And as we're always concerned with antibiotic stewardship, increasing rates of resistance and adverse effects, I know that you probably see a lot of C. diff colitis as we do. If we can avoid prescribing them, then all the better. Yes, C. diff is definitely the devil on our wards for sure. And it's kind of interesting. I've been a doctor just long enough now to see patterns and trends that are starting to change. And certainly just as there's some thoughts that maybe acute appendicitis doesn't need to be treated surgically in some cases, here we are with a study that's looking at whether antibiotics are necessary for diverticulitis in the age of antibiotic stewardship. So Lauren, uh, let's get into the methodology or the design of this trial. Tell us what they did. Uh, So this was a randomized, open-label, pragmatic trial done in 22 clinical sites in the Netherlands. So tell us, who are the patients in the study? Patients were presenting with the first episode of left-sided, uncomplicated, acute diverticulitis. Only the pericolonic fat is inflamed, so there's no extension beyond that, or otherwise it would be defined as complicated. And this diagnosis was confirmed by imaging, so ultrasound or CT scan, within 24 hours. All of the patients were excluded if they had a prior history of diverticulitis, severe diverticulitis, sepsis, or antibiotic use for any reason in the last four weeks. And so, Lauren, tell me, if a patient comes when you suspect diverticulitis is their diagnosis, do you generally order an ultrasound first, or do you go straight to CT? It usually depends on the patient population, but uh, CT is typically the imaging of choice. What, what did the typical patient in this study look like? So the included patients in this study were around 56 years of age and had an ASA fitness grade of one or two. So typically were quite normal, healthy patients, or they had mild systemic disease. And these patients had already been having symptoms for about two to three days. This being a randomized trial, what were they randomized to? The participants were assigned to either observational or antibiotic treatment strategies. So in the antibiotic group, they received amoxicillin clavulanic acid for 10 days or ciproflagyl if they had an allergy, whereas the observational group was just observed. And they were followed in clinic at two months and six months, and then followed by telephone at 12 and 24 months. So quite a long period of follow-up. 
So these patients uh, were all discharged home from the emergency department if they had the uncomplicated diverticulitis? Actually, interestingly, most of the patients in both groups were admitted to hospital. Uh, and that's a quite a different treatment pattern than what we see here in Canada. And as far as the antibiotic choice that they used in this trial, is that something typical that we would choose, clavulinic acid up front or ciproflagellin in the case of an allergy? Yeah, so in most people with uncomplicated diverticulitis, using oral antibiotics is the, the treatment of choice in the first place, but these are the agents that we would choose. Okay, and so what did they measure as far as their efficacy of these two interventions? This group was looking at time to recovery as their primary outcome, and their definition of that was discharge from hospital Patients had to be able to tolerate a normal diet, no fevers, and a uh, visual analog pain scale of less than four, essentially back to their baseline function. This was measured at their follow-up, so two, six, 12, and 24 months. And so interesting, as you said, most people in this trial were admitted to hospital. I wonder if that affects the rates of their primary outcome definition, since as you indicated, uh, you wouldn't necessarily admit all of these individuals. Yeah, it makes it hard to know how to apply this to the patients that I see. Okay, and any uh, interesting secondary outcomes that they measured? Things that were important to me from a patient's perspective was the occurrence of complicated diverticulitis, so if any of these patients progressed to uh, more severe cases, the need for a surgical intervention, uh, and any side effects of antibiotic treatment were important, and then finally they looked at mortality. I think those are reasonable outcomes to look at, especially if really the main thing you're concerned about is whether these people are going to progress to further complicated diverticulitis. And so it's sort of a your tolerance of risk adversity in this case, and hopefully this trial will inform that. Tell us, what did they find? So the median time to recovery was 14 days in the group that was observed and 12 days in the antibiotic group. There was no significant difference between these two, but they did have quite broad interquartile ranges. Right, so lots of variability around the time to recovery, and that likely ends up accounting for a lack of difference between the two groups. Any of those secondary outcomes that were of interest? So no significant differences between any of the secondary outcomes. Obviously, the patients who were treated with antibiotics had more complication rates during the six-month follow-up, but the, the rates of sigmoid resection were similar between the two, and the complication rates were similar between the two groups. Of note, three patients who received antibiotics were actually discontinued because of side effects, and one of these patients developed anaphylactic shock. It begs the question, um, when you find a completely negative trial, was the trial appropriately powered to be able to detect the differences that they were hoping to? There was some um, stats magic, as I like to call it. They changed the group sizes that they were aiming for um, post hoc, so after the study design, because they had made some changes in their time to recovery from their pilot study. I don't really know how to interpret this based on the complicated stats that they used. Any other interesting points or observations you wanted to point out? One other flaw in the study design that I could see was that, unfortunately, the patients and investigators were not blinded, so this was an open-label trial, and ostensibly they could have used a placebo design, but you would expect that to bias in favor of the antibiotic group, which we didn't see here. Uh, whether it would have affected the data, who knows, but of note, the analysis was blinded. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if you think about it conceptually, somebody who's taking the treatment and knows they're taking the treatment, in this case, antibiotics you could surmise that they would feel magically better than that those who were not taking the treatment just because they knew they were getting something for their problem. And that was their primary outcome as sort of their time to recovery and feeling better, so to speak. So I agree it's a concern, but not necessarily a study killer. 
Any uh, thoughts on your overall balance of strengths and weaknesses in this trial? Believable or not? The theory behind the the trial is believable. I think that the strengths of the trial are that it was multi-center. It was an intention to treat trial. So they followed these patients for quite a long period of time, up to two years. And it would support an observational strategy in the acute, uncomplicated diverticulitis patients based on their time to recovery and similar rates of complications that were patient-centered. A few of the flaws, as we mentioned, make it difficult for me to know if I could apply this to my patient population. Most notably that all the patients who received antibiotics received IV antibiotics as the first line of treatment, which we don't necessarily do, and we definitely don't admit all of these patients with uncomplicated diverticulitis to hospital. Right, and I think that as you've seen in the outcomes from this trial itself, there are risk of being transformed into a complicated diverticulitis is quite low. There doesn't appear to be a lot of safety concerns in the placebo arm, so likely it's safe to discharge your patients in this situation with close follow-up arranged as well. Would you agree? I would. I think we need to have buy-in from our consulting services. So any decision that's made has to be supported and also has to be supported by the organizations who create the guidelines. One interesting tidbit was that the American Gastroenterological Association published guidelines in December of 2015 based on one other trial and the abstract for this trial indicated that a selective antibiotic strategy for acute uncomplicated diverticulitis might be reasonable. But I think that from a, would it change my practice pattern currently tomorrow on my next shift? I would need to discuss it with the staff. And for us, that would be general surgery at our center and make sure that everyone's on the same page. But I think that the evidence for watchful waiting in these patients who are hemodynamically stable and not very sick, as long as they have good follow-up observation might be a a sound idea. Completely agree. A collaborative approach with appropriate follow-up. Thank you, Lauren. That was a very interesting study to take us through. I appreciate it. Let's move on to the uh, study that I chose uh, for this week. It's a surgical-themed week. And so I was looking at an article that was published in JAMA in October, actually, of 2016 that looked at close contact casting versus surgery in unstable ankle fractures in elderly individuals. Great. What is the bottom line of your article, Kieran? Well, this is a randomized controlled trial, and it compared close contact casting with surgery for unstable ankle fractures in older adults, as I said. They found no difference in ankle function or in the quality of life of individuals at six months. Infection and wound breakdown were more common with surgery. Close contact casting may be an appropriate alternative treatment to surgery for older adults who present with uh, unstable ankle fracture. Well, that's very interesting. That can have a lot of patient-centered outcomes that would be really interesting to look at too. Why did you decide to choose this article? Well, admittedly, as with the diverticulitis article, this topic is fracturing my cozy medicine bubble that I've lived in on this show for the longest time. It's not a palliative care article. Heyo, here we go. But as our audience continues to grow, right now we're at over 6,000 listeners per month in 103 countries across the world, so too does our appetite for topics outside of the field of internal medicine. Now, ankle fractures are significant. They cause loss of independence and quality of life, especially in elderly individuals. And that results in substantial health costs for the healthcare system. So the contemporary intervention is to fix this surgically, but that is obviously associated with infections and other healing complications. So there was a recent Cochrane review that analyzed casting 
that was associated with poor fracture alignment and healing, as well as plaster sores, versus surgery using open reduction and internal fixation, which is often complicated by poor implant fixation, wound problems, and surgical site infections. But that Cochrane review wasn't able to make any succinct or distinct recommendations due to the poor quality of the studies that were included in it. So this trial is trying to get down to the bottom of that? Yeah, exactly. This trial is trying to answer the definitive question, which is the better way to manage this? Wonderful. So here's what they did. This is a pragmatic, multi-center, equivalence, randomized clinical trial. A fancy way of just saying it's done in a lot of places and it's trying to do it in a way that's pragmatic or practical to practice. And they had blinded outcomes as far as the assessors at 24 trauma centers in the United Kingdom, along with district general hospitals. And they followed up the outcomes at six weeks and six months after randomization. And they used patient-reported questionnaires and performance tests at these clinic visits to assess their outcome. Sounds like quite the undertaking. Who were the patients that were included in the study? Well, they're interested in older adults. So they looked at individuals who were older than 60 years old, and they presented with an acute malleolar fracture and an unstable ankle joint on the initial x-ray, and who these people would be normally offered surgery as far as the management of this problem. They, patients were included if they were ambulatory before the injury. They couldn't be bed-bound and have fallen out of bed and fractured their ankle. They had to be able to provide informed consent, of course, and follow instructions for physical rehabilitation. As well, they needed to live near the recruiting hospital and could attend these six-month follow-up visits. So mainly just you needed to be included if you had a fracture and you could participate in the plan to rehabilitate you. Mm -hmm. If a patient required a stress radiograph to elicit whether there was any Taylor instability, they were excluded. That was not the purpose of the uh, intervention because they would typically be more of a surgical candidate. Patients with critical limb ischemia, insulin-dependent diabetes, active leg ulcerations, open fractures, and a few other things that basically had significant peripheral vascular disease, which would impair wound healing, or had a significant fracture such that surgery would definitely be needed, then they were all excluded. Great. Could you describe the population that was actually included in the trial? So your typical patient in this was an independent community-dwelling 71-year-old female who was cognitively well, who had hypertension and osteoarthritis with no major alcohol consumption. So not a lot of major risk factors for falls, just happened to have a fall and break their ankle. It's a pretty broad inclusion criteria, so a pretty generalizable result. That's great. What was the intervention of the trial? So the primary question was, does close contact casting which for those of you who are not familiar, is a molded below knee cast that has minimal padding, as compared with internal fixation surgery result in an equivalent functional outcome for adults older than 60 years old with an unstable ankle fracture. The patients were randomized to receive either surgery or close contact casting. Randomization was stratified by center and fracture pattern. So there's different types of fracture pattern. You can have infrasyndesmotic or transsyndesmotic versus suprasyndesmotic basically the location of the fracture in relation to the malleolus. It being a pragmatic design or a practical design, the protocol specified that if during the clinical follow-up there was in the treating surgeon's opinion an unacceptable loss of fracture position before the clinical union of the bone, the surgeon could re-manipulate and reapply a cast in the outpatient clinic or in the operating room or they could decide it needed to be converted to surgery in the best interest of the patient. And tell us about the primary outcomes of the study. 
So again, a lot of this was patient-centered and patient-reported outcomes. So they used something called the Olerud Molander Ankle Score, OMAS. And this is a scale of 0 to 100. And the higher the score on the scale, the, the better the function of the individual. It basically measures ankle fracture symptoms. The secondary outcomes were measures of subjective patient outcomes as far as their quality of life and patient satisfaction. And then also objective outcomes as far as measuring the ankle range of motion, radiographic malunion, healthcare resource use. So then, then you know, you're looking at uh, surgical uh, safety outcomes, so they recorded rates of adverse events, whether there was complications operatively, wound implant and cast complications, clots, additional procedures, and also implant removal. Seems pretty comprehensive, lots of the outcomes that I would really be interested in these patient population. Tell us about the m- main findings of the study. So they had 620 patients that were randomized to either arm of the trial. It was determined that a uh, OMAS, that uh, Olerud Melander ankle score, difference of six on the scale was considered to be minimally clinically important. And overall, 593 patients completed the study, so a really good follow-through rate. 20% of those who uh, underwent close contact casting converted to surgery after receiving that. And since that was a pre-specified allowable event, those participants remained in the per-protocol analysis arm of casting. At six months, casting resulted in ankle function equivalent to that with surgery. The score for each were 66 for surgery and 64.5 for casting. So it did not have that minimally clinical important difference between the two scores. And that can make a a huge difference in the risk of surgery for these patients. If they're elderly, they have a lot of comorbidities. So that's a pretty important study. Anything else that caught your eye or any interesting points that you were looking to share? Yeah, is it a direct extension of your comment? You know, rates of infection and wound breakdown were far more common with surgery. So 10% versus 1%, which was an odds ratio of seven times, 7.3. And uh, also you had to have additional operating room procedures done in the surgical group, 6% versus 1% for casting. So certainly the, the surgery was associated with a lot more, well, surgical intervention beyond the initial surgery and complications of it. This idea of radiologic malunion was more common in the casting group, 15% versus 3% for surgery, and the odds ratio of that was 6. You know, the the significance of this concept of radiologic malunion is that the rates of osteoarthritis are thought to be higher when you have radiologic malunion. So that's the importance of measuring that. So perhaps casting uh, might result in more osteoarthritis, although there's no long-term follow-up in this study to determine that outcome. And then the last thing was just with their secondary outcomes, no differences in the quality of life, pain, ankle motion, mobility, and patient satisfaction between the two groups. It sounds pretty promising. Uh, Any important limitations of the study that we haven't discussed? Well, you know that they said that as part of their inclusion criteria, that you had to be uh, independently mobile at baseline, but they didn't actually report what the pre-fracture function was in a more granular fashion. And that could really potentially affect your functional outcomes if there were differences between those groups. So it would have been nice to know just how independently ambulatory each individual was and were they balanced between the two surgery and casting arms. And the other interesting thing is that 118 patients, so 38%, who were initially treated with casting ultimately developed a significant radiographic complication or they were converted from cast treatment to surgery. As I mentioned, 20% of the people ended up having surgery. A fair proportion of the people in the casting arm 
had some sort of radiographic complication that resulted in malunion or had to undergo surgery. Okay, and so what's your final take? How do you summarize the strengths and weaknesses in the study? Yeah, I mean, I think this was a really, really well done trial. It's getting at an important question in an age of trying to do less when we think that more is associated with harm. I didn't see any major flaws in this study that would indicate to me, you know, we should throw it out. So I think overall, you can take away that close contact casting and trying to avoid surgery in elderly individuals with this particular problem is a safe and effective methodology to do so. You know, in this age of patient-centered care, you should offer this as an option to the individual, but let them know that they are at a potentially higher rate for uh, radiographic malunion, which may result in osteoarthritis complications down the road, and they may need surgery regardless if we try the casting and it doesn't work. But, you know, if the emergency physicians uh, or the uh, surgeons are comfortable doing this in the emergency department or an outpatient clinic, then we can hopefully, you know, avoid hospitalization for a lot of these individuals uh, and surgery. Well, yeah, and if, if you're weighing the risk of further development of osteoarthritis versus risk of an operative fixation and all of the risks that go along with surgery, I think that this study can really help to, to inform your patients. So that's great. Yeah, yeah, thanks. My favorite part of the show, as always, it's the good stuff, where we're talking about what we're reading about. Lauren, what were you reading about this week? So a study that caught my eye in the popular media was actually a a trial published in a pediatric journal, and it's called The Impact of Rudeness on Medical Team Performance. So it was a randomized trial. Without getting into the nitty-gritty of it, it was uh, two... NICU teams who are performing a simulation and one was exposed to an authoritarian rude simulation and the other person was not. And it actually showed a 12% difference in the variance for their procedural performance. So the group that was exposed to this rude intervention actually did worse on the task. And so I just thought that that was a really interesting way to look at how our workplace collaboration and uh, how we communicate with each other can really have a big impact on our patients and the possibility of iatrogenic medical errors. And so, you know, obviously this is coming up in some of our literature around communication and crisis resource management that we we see in, in simulation and team building. But this was the first sort of big randomized study looking at that that I thought was really interesting. Yeah, I certainly appreciate that in the hustle and bustle and stressful environment that is patient care, we often forget that we are not only looking after humans, but we are working with other humans. And certainly, it seems to have an effect uh, on uh, those enjoyment of their workspace. And as you've interestingly pointed out, perhaps their performance as well. Well, thanks for that, Lauren. I chose a completely different thread to talk about for today's good stuff. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Lauren comes from a very big family. Um, she's got lots of sisters, as do I. I have three brothers. And Lauren, tell me, has your parents ever rifled through your sister's names and sometimes thrown in the dog's name when they're trying to get you to do something? Oh, my parents, my grandparents, pretty much since there was more than just me, they couldn't remember my name. Yeah, and certainly I've been called four of our dogs who have long been dead, along with my other brothers before my dad finally comes up with the name that is Kieran. But I always wondered about why that was. And interestingly enough, there was an article published in Memory and Cognition recently that talked about why we do this. 
so Dr. Deffler, Samantha Deffler, uh, looked into this. And basically, the, the, the concept, the idea is that our brain puts packets of information into different buckets. And in the case of names, you have those that you love and cherish and are important in your life in one bucket. And, you know, you might have work colleagues in another bucket and uh, sort of random individuals you've come across in a third bucket. That helps you to sort of access information uh, in different ways and in faster, efficient ways. Such that when you're trying to come up with one of your loved one's name and your brain shifts into that loved one name bucket, it rifles through the, the uh, individuals in it, but can't always uh, pick out the one it wants right away. Hence, Lauren becomes Clifford or Sally the dog instead of Lauren the daughter. <laughs> Oh, that's really interesting. I just thought all of my sisters and I have names that rhyme, so I thought that that was the cause. That works. I also thought that just my brothers and I looked so much alike they couldn't tell us apart sometimes. Turns out there's another explanation. Well, thanks for joining us, Lauren. It was a great week. I really appreciated all of your intelligent insight, and we look forward to having you back on the show sometime soon. Yeah, definitely. Thanks so much for having me. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable, follow us on Twitter at roundstable, or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for joining us this week. Who knows what the wonderful world of medicine holds for next week?